Well, for those of you who have been gone for a couple of weeks, welcome back. Or, that was me. It's good to be back. Um, it's always fun. I told one person today, I, she goes, what'd you do for two weeks? I said, I got a haircut. She said, it takes you two weeks? I said, yeah. Sat in the guy's chair. His wife called and said, um, come home. So I had to come back. It took me two weeks to get a haircut. So that's why I was gone for two weeks. Not really. But it's great to be back. New series. My titles sometimes are hard. I don't put a whole lot of effort into them. But this one, A Beautiful Messy Life. That actually I thought about. Where did that come from? Well, the Corinth church was beautiful. It was. It was sanctified. It was holy. It's God's chosen people. There's these, all these lofty, lofty descriptions that he uses. But if you know anything about this church, they're a complete mess, just like you. <laughs> they are. I mean, I, I don't mean to, you know, unveil your personal life here on a Sunday morning. But, um, and, and that's why I chose it, because they're this glorious combination of beauty and, and sanctification and holy, and, and yet they've got some problems. And you put them together, and that's where I, I got this beautiful, messy life. Now, uh, a word of honesty. Most pastors don't preach this thing uh, at all unless they're about ready to retire. I'll let you read between the lines. No, I'm not about ready to retire, but I'm 60 and I'm close to not caring. Um, um, You get a certain age. I thought it was 70. It's earlier than 70. Um, 70 was when you just, the governor comes off and you just, you can say anything you want. I know because some of you are 70 and you, you act like you can say anything you want and your governor's off. But it happens a little earlier than that. You get to the point where you're just like, you know what? Let the chips fall. And so uh, that's why. And, uh, you know, if you're, if you're a pastor, you, you want to preach Ephesians and Colossians and First and Second John. They're just pastoral and they're nice and they're kind. And you'll preach Romans. Stay out of 9, 10, and 11. It's a mess. Um, you'll preach Revelation 1, 2, 3. Leave the rest of it. You'll preach Daniel 1 through 9. Ah, the, the end. It's a mess. Stay away from it. Um, but first Corinthians, uh, uh-uh. uh, go to second Corinthians. You can preach that. And no one will dislike you. You preach first Corinthians. Oh my gosh. You're going to deal with lawsuits, sexual problems, tongues, uh, women speaking, not speaking. I mean, there's a disaster area. So if you want pure, crazy controversy, don't go anywhere else for the next almost year. <laughs> We're just going to deal with it. It's a beautiful, messy life. That's really not why I chose it. There's three reasons why I chose this book. Number one, it was written to an urban church. Um, When you come into uh, Corinth at the time, it was an urban city. And we are an urban church. We're we're not inner city. Uh, You know, we're not huge, like in Portland maybe. But we are an urban church uh, marked by diversity and marked by culture diversity, some ethnic diversity and economic diversity. And because of that, you have differing views. You have different issues. We don't have a homogeneous unit like in maybe a rural environment. I understand that the Internet has made everywhere slightly diverse. 
But the fact is, is that's what Paul's writing to and that reflects us. We're a city church and they were a city church. And city churches face certain things that suburban churches don't face. They have city issues. And if you've been in our church for a long time or any length of time, you understand what I'm talking about. You, you, you sign up for some challenges when you're a city church. I like them. I'm up for them. Some people just like, uh-uh, I, I want out. I, I want, you know, the pasture. I, I get that. But the city has some opportunity of influence and impact that I enjoy. Corinth was that church. Secondly, is Paul dealt with a lot of really, really difficult issues. Uh, really difficult issues. And I find in our culture today, we're not dealing with difficult issues. We disagree and cancel each other. Uh, we disagree, and it's really sad. I don't know if you noticed this week, Salem-Kaiser School District said, uh, we're no longer going to let anyone come to our board meetings. Why? Because parents don't know how to act. And, and so they fight, and they yell, and they scream, and they threaten, and so they can't let anyone. So even adults nowadays, we can't even have board meetings where people can discuss. And Paul addresses some really thorny issues And we need to, as the body of Christ, mirror to the rest of the world, how do you discuss really difficult issues? Like, can we sue each other? Like, um, what do you do with a guy who's sleeping with his mother? Kind of a problem. Periodically, I'll probably need to let you know. It's going to be some PG-13. I will keep it out of the R-rated stuff. But we're going to have to deal with this stuff. So parents, read ahead. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to make that judgment for you. You need to make that judgment, but we're going to deal with the stuff that's in the text. I will deal with it with great discretion, but I'm going to have to deal with it. It's in the Bible. So parents, just be, uh, just, uh, some, just a mild, uh, alert to you that we're going to look at some stuff that it's, God's, it's a mess. We got to talk about it. The third reason I dealt with, I want to deal with this is because I think in the last three years, we have just shattered Christian idealism. What is that? Christian idealism, I can find the perfect place to live, the perfect church, the perfect location, the perfect job. Now, everyone has moved all over the place trying to find that. And you know what they discovered? They discovered wherever they went, job-wise, or wherever they moved, they looked in the mirror and, dear God, they're there. (laughs) Oh, no! (laughs) I'm here! My wife's here! She's a disaster! The reality is idealism doesn't exist. The church is a mess. You're a mess. You may not like it, but you are. You don't have your act together. You aren't perfect. And your husband, he's a mess. How do I know? I met with him. (laughs) One of the things that happens in our culture is we really want something that doesn't exist. We want somebody to have it all together. We want a place that's perfect and pastoral and pristine. And we want a job that's, oh, this is great. This is the best place. And so, man, people are moving jobs all over the place. And you, you know the stats. You've heard about it. And, and one, one of the things that I love about Paul is this church has wrecked the world. And Paul doesn't run away from him. He doesn't leave them. 
He doesn't say, ha, I'm done with you guys. I'm out of here. I mean, they're doing everything. They, they can't even do communion right. They take communion and people die the fourth row back. One, two, three, never mind. <laughs> That's a little personal, isn't it? <laughs> One, two, three, four. Oh, sorry. They're, they're, they're dying. Their, their worship services are a circus. And instead of saying, I am through with you. I mean, Paul could have done that. He could have said, I got the Thessalonian church. I got the Ephesus church. He stays there and he comes back. And by the way, he hangs with them. We have two recorded letters. We know that there's actually four letters. And instead of writing them off because they don't fit his ideal, to me, he's such a model of a great leader who says, I'm going to hang here with you. We're going to make it. That's the reason why I've chosen this. It's because I think we need to let the world know. You don't have to always jump a marriage and jump a job and jump relationships. Sometimes you just have to knuckle down, dig a little deeper, and look a person in the eye and say, I'm really committed to your heart. You're a mess, and I'm not going anywhere. Let's do a little bit of background. Paul arrives in Corinth at about 50 AD. Now, he's taken one missionary journey. He's traveled around and he has had some incredible success. And he comes to an area called Troas. It's on the western side of Turkey. And he leaps over the the ocean there, uh, the sea. And he comes into an area of Thessalonica and Philippi. And he comes to Athens, slides down to a little city by the name of Corinth. Now, if you want to know what Corinth looks like, geographically, it looks like Albuquerque. It's this little city that's in a bowl. And what happens is, is on the ridge of Corinth is all where all the prostitutes live so if it looks like albuquerque it acts like vegas now that you know what corinth looks like paul lands there and he finds uh, he founded a church he comes in he spent about a year and a half there and he's ministering to people there and then he leaves he's formed this church established some leadership meaning he kind of appointed some elders Spend some time there, and then he sails off to Ephesus. About five years later, word comes back to Paul that there's some problems in Corinth. Imagine that. I mean, you know, plant a church in Vegas and imagine. Probably going to have some problems, yes. And so, because he was their spiritual father and cared deeply about them, he felt compelled to write them a letter, of which we don't have that letter. We lost it. You know, God, for whatever reason, decided that that's not the letter we need to have in the scripture. It was not put in the canon. We have read about it. We know it existed because of some inferences that is written to us in the scriptures, but we don't have it. To follow up on that message, the church actually sent a delegation, we know that, of leaders to meet with Paul, and they brought with them, Chloe was part of that, and brought with them a letter asking a number of specific questions about moral issues, doctrinal issues, and church life. To which Paul 
responds to them in this sequential letter of which we now have called 1 Corinthians. We know exactly what's in their letter and we know what's in their list because Paul addresses it. Issues of division, issues of lawsuit, issues of discipline in the church, issues of uh, communion, issues of women and some of the uh, their limitations or what they can do in the church and head coverings and cultural issues and worship and prophecy and tongues, all the stuff that Paul just goes down the list. All of that was brought to Paul. By this group of people. And he writes this letter. 1 Corinthians that we're going to go through. In about 57 AD. So now seven years after. The church has been planted. Paul received word. That there was a faction in the church. That refused to acknowledge his authority. What was the basis of this? Well they said things like this. Paul who are you? I mean you didn't walk with Jesus. You weren't one of the apostles. I mean, why should we listen to you? And by the way, you can't even speak your way out of a hat. Apollos is a much better speaker than you. And, and the church can always do this. I mean, you know, um, people kind of are they, they, driven by personality. You know, I take a couple of weeks off and I come back and somebody says, oh, you're back. I much prefer Pastor Jeff. Why don't you take five more weeks off? <laughs> you know, in fact, you know, have you ever considered a sabbatical for 10 years? Um, People tend to kind of do that. And so that's what they were doing with, with Paul. And, and, but theirs was, frankly, a little deeper than personality. Theirs was, uh, you have no basis for authority in our lives. And I'm quite certain that maybe some of you have ran into that. Maybe you come to a person and somebody is doing something, living in a certain way. Maybe they're sleeping with their boyfriend or maybe they're doing something else, getting drunk on a Saturday night. And, you know, and you think, wait, 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 wait a minute. You know, having a beer is not a problem. Getting to the point where you can't walk, that's a problem. Who are you to judge me? Who said you're the judge? And boom, they come back and maybe they even quote the Bible. And they'll say something like, you know, judge not or you will be judged. Know the Bible. And there's nothing worse, man, than having a drunk throw the Bible at you. <laughs> I mean, that gets like, like really weird, especially at 11 o'clock at night. So they're having this struggle. So Paul makes a hurried visit to the church and the results were frustrating Understandably for the apostle and for the Christians at the church. He then writes them a third strong letter that Titus delivers to them. And this third letter is also lost to us. So letters really one and three. One and three are lost. We don't have them. We have letters two and four. What happens is the church had submitted to Paul's direction and had disciplined the leaders of the opposition. In light of that wonderful news, Paul writes the fourth piece of correspondence to them, which is known in the scriptures as 2 Corinthians. He raises a question, and here's the question that I want to wrestle with this morning. When dealing with each other, we're going to come into those issues because we are at times messy. 
In other words, sometimes there's things that are going on in the body of Christ that aren't honoring to God. There are things that we do that uh, we, we don't have our acts all together. And how do we approach each other? And how do we correct each other? And how do we bring that correction? Or do we just kind of like, up, oh, grace of God, God will take care of you. Judge not or you'll be judged. Do we just do hands off? Or how do we approach each other? And if you know the book of 1 Corinthians, you'll know that Paul is going to deal with some really, really thorny issues. But how does he see this church? How does he set them up so that they receive what he's about to tell them? How do you approach people in correction? And what Paul suggests to us is something that's really important is that number one, you have to deal with the issue of authority. He starts off, Paul called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother, Sosthenes. Now, if you look at some of other, Paul's other letters, he does not begin this way. He's beginning this way, for, I think, for a reason. The reason is, is because he understands that the authority issue is an issue that he doesn't presume. He doesn't believe for a moment that everyone receives him. He doesn't believe for a moment that everyone's going to receive what he has to say. So he starts with the issue of authority. And we have to deal, I think, with that issue of authority as well. Why? Because that's going to be the basis of which we at times have to deal with correction or have to deal with church discipline because we're going to deal with that down the road. 1 Corinthians 5 and beyond, we're going to have to talk about how do we understand church discipline? What's the basis of church discipline? Should we even be doing it nowadays? In this era of grace where we should not we be living with grace all the time, should we ever do church discipline? And Paul's point is this, and I think it's where we began, is the authority of Christ always needs to be our authority of Christ it needs to be that which we appeal to. He comes to them and he says, I come to you not because I'm here with my own opinion. I'm called. I'm called to be an apostle of Christ by the will of God. I'm not sent here because I want to be. I'm sent here because God has sent me here. And he understands that his authority is not his own, it's God's. Now you and I can't say that. You and I have no basis of saying that. We're not apostles. I don't think for a moment one person in this room is an apostle in the range and the realm of what Paul is. We have not received that apostolic commission. So we can't approach each other I can say I'm a pastor. That's fine. We can say, some of you, I'm your parent. And that works when they're five. It works when they're 16 and want the car. It works when they're 35 and they want in your will. But to be honest with you, it gets to the point where it doesn't work. And you have to ask yourself the question, because we 
don't get to say as Paul did, I am an apostle of Paul or, or of God. I come because of the will of God. We have to deal with the issue of authority. Paul said that's the beginning point when we're coming to bring correction. We're coming to address the body of Christ and talk about issues and talk about behavior and talk about worship and talk about church discipline and talk about communion. What's the basis that we come to? He says, you have to begin with authority. What is it that I yield to? Now, I would suggest that you and I don't have the ability to appeal to apostleship. But what you and I all have to appeal to is the word of God. And what I would argue is that what we in this church would suggest is that what we humbly will submit to as best that we can interpret and understand is not our opinion, not my authority as a pastor, not even the deacon's authority as the ruling or governing or leading spiritual body of this church, but ultimately our surrender and humble yielding and coming under the authority of God's word. That's what we would appeal to. Whatever we say and come to and bring correction on anything we would say it's our understanding and submission to God's word let me give you an illustration one of the issues that's going to come up in this text is this topic called tongues a number of years ago somebody came to me and was talking to me about the gift of tongues it's in the Bible. I said, yep, it's in the Bible. And um, it's best I understand it. There's two manifestations of the gift of tongues in the Bible. There's one manifestation of the gift of tongues in the book of Acts. And that's where there is a person who is speaking and everyone hears that person in their own language. So that would be like, um, I've been told that there's 40,000 approximate students in Salem-Kaiser School District, and there are dozens and dozens of different languages. I don't know how many, 129, don't quote me on the number, it's like 79, 129, there's a lot of them. So imagine if they allowed me to preach, they'd never do this, but imagine if they would allow me to preach to all 40,000 students in a gathered space and I preached and they were all together, but a miracle occurred that I preached, but all 40,000 of them, most of them English speakers, but many of them not heard me in their native tongue, in their first language. You would say that is a miracle. That's the manifestation of what happened in the book of Acts. That's one of the expressions of the gift of tongues. It's cool. It's a miracle. I've never witnessed it. It's right there in the Bible. Another manifestation of the gift of tongues is given to us in Corinth. And that is they are in worship and there is a person who's speaking and it is an unintelligible language, if you will. It is not something that is known to them as a language, but it is a sp something spoken unto the Lord. What's unto the Lord? Worship is unto the Lord. 
prophecy is to you and me. This is unto the Lord. And so what happens is, Paul says, it is something that's unto the Lord and it is therefore worship and what it needs in the public sector so that God is worshipped and the body is edified. It needs an interpretation. I have witnessed this. Somebody speaks and somebody interprets and it is an edification to the body. It is a worship unto the Lord. That is a different manifestation of the gift of tongues as is recorded in the book of Acts. This person had a third manifestation of the gift of tongues that he was encouraging me to seek. And this was what he called the gift of tongues manifesting in a prayer language. It was a prayer, unintelligible, much like he suggested, was like the Holy Spirit that was unintelligible to God. Its purpose was to edify me. I said, great, help me see it in the word of God. Gifts are for the edification of the body the strengthening of the body got a problem you're trying to tell me that there's a gift for the edification solely of me got a problem there number two gifts are to be manifested and orderly and revealed in scripture i don't see prayer language anywhere revealed here help me understand where that is if i'm going to seek it i've got to be instructed in it in the word of god and he goes well what's not there i've just experienced it i got a question at that point or i really have a decision that i have to make And my friend, so do you. And here's your decision. What's going to be your authority? What's going to be your authority? Is it going to be me? Is it going to be another pastor? Is it going to be your friend? Is it going to be experience? What's going to be your authority? I'm not asking you to make it me. Please don't. I will tell you in that moment to my dear friend, I said, I can't seek that which I can't support with scripture. I can't. I love you. I have a high measure of trust for you. But when it comes to the issue of authority, I've driven a line. And I've driven a pretty hard line. And this is what Paul is saying. I'm going to come to you on the basis of what? I'm an apostle by the will of God. I can't say that, nor can you. But what you and I can say is I come to you based upon the word of God. As best as we can interpret it. And our decision is, will I humbly submit to it or will I step outside of it and use a different authority? It's the authority of Christ that we have to appeal to. Secondly, 
in dealing with issues in the church, Paul says that I want to begin with identity in Christ that I must affirm, not behavior. I want to begin with identity in Christ, not with behavior. Fundamentalism, which was an outside-in religion, defining that which we were against, said, let me see your behavior and I will tell you who you are. Fundamentalism said, let me see your behavior. Tell me what you do. Show me what you do. Tell me what movies you go to. Tell me what you read. And I will tell you who you are. I think that's as erroneous as a $6 bill. There's not a $6 bill, is there? (laughs) Why? Because my friend, Paul was not writing to a group of people who were nailing it in the righteousness category. But what did he say about them? To the church of God in Corinth. To God's church, not Paul's church. To God's church. To those sanctified. What does it mean to be sanctified? Set apart for God's glorious purposes. Who are called to be holy. Called to be holy. Together with all of those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Their Lord and ours. How glorious. How marvelous. How lifted. How beautiful. Oh no, for Paul, far more important than behavior is their identity. More important than their struggle is their identity. More important than their immaturity is their identity. It's not that their behavior is unimportant. It's not that he's not going to address it. It's not that it's something that he's going to let slide. It's just not where he's going to start. And my friend, I would suggest to us, it's not what is most important to us. It's not we're going to sweep behavior under the rug. It's not that we're going to say it never matters. My friend, we're going to get into it. But if you begin with behavior and you say that my behavior, your behavior tells me who you are, then on any given day, my friend, there's not a person in this room that is going to make that performance grid. And everyone here is going to come up a failure. Because none of you are that righteous. None of you are that perfect. You have a beautiful, messy life. And the place that we begin is our identity. And Paul begins with his glorious place to the church of God. I'm writing to Christ's church. 
You're immature. You reject my authority. You don't want to listen. You're not very humble. But I want you to know what I think of you. You're God's church. You're sanctified. You have a purpose in God's plan. You're holy. You have a glorious purpose in the work of God. God has a glorious place for you and you're going to fulfill that. And I want you to know I believe in you and I, I believe what God is going to do in you. Today, you're not fully fulfilling it, but we're going to get there. I believe in you. Why? Because you're God's church. You're not mine. And if God has put his stamp and his blood upon you, and if Christ has identified with you, and if Christ has put his arm around you, and if Christ is willing to identify with you, then who am I to take my arm away from you and say that your behavior is not good enough for me to associate with you? It's your identity in Christ that we must affirm. Most important in helping a person mature is to help them understand that they're who they are before they're told how they should live. I know you have a lot of questions. You're like, well, what about, what about, we'll get there. Chapter five follows chapters one, two, and three, and four. <laughs> we'll get there. So <laughs> you're just going to have to wait. <laughs> I know it's going to kill you, but we'll get there. It's God's work, third, in our life that gives us hope. How do we address those that need correction? You establish the issue of authority. You affirm their identity. And you find your own personal hope for them. And you recognize the work of God in their life. I always thank God for you because of his grace given to you in Christ Jesus. For in him, you've been enriched in every way in all of your speaking and in all of your knowledge because our testimony about Christ was confirmed in you and therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. When Paul was writing to them, he said, I want to tell you about three things that I see in you. Number one, I want to tell you about the grace that I believe that is in you. You see, bad behavior doesn't remove glorious grace. It doesn't. Or Paul would be a liar. It's true they're immature and they haven't grown up a lot and they're kind of divisive and they're a mess. But Paul's not using flattery and I don't think he's lying when he says, I thank God for you because his grace has been given to you. Immature behavior does not eradicate God's grace. It's in them and he recognizes that. And that's true of your child right now that maybe it's not living the way you want. 
Maybe there's people in your family. Maybe there's people you work with. And maybe what God is calling you to do today is to look at them with the eyes of what Paul did to this church. Is to say, Can I, do I see the grace of God? Do I believe that person has professed faith in Christ? Yes. Remember years ago, a conversation I had with a person and this person was kind of denying their faith. And I just said, no, I, 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 I just can't let you walk down that path. The reality is I see faith all over your life. I see God's grace all over your life. That, that was years and years ago. And sometime later, this person came to me and said, do you remember that conversation we had? I said, yeah, I do. And the person came to me and said, you know, I appreciate the fact that you were willing to fight for me more than I was. I said, Yeah. It's because I believed it. I believe Paul was willing to fight for this church more than they were. And he was willing to identify in them a grace that they probably were willing to deny. And he was willing to thank God for it and willing to cast the vision. This is what I see in you. Not only that, he was willing to remind them that they were endowed with every spiritual riches and blessing. Therefore, verse 7, you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait, await for the uh, Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. There's a, if you go up into the mountains of Colorado, there's a lot of old mining towns. They're kind of fun to visit if you ever get out there. And uh, you'll go up there and you'll read some history about these. And there were times where, you know, Man, just, I mean, people would lose their minds to flood from New York and Wisconsin and everywhere to come up here. Why? Because they, they called them enriched mines. They were mines that are all kinds of gold and silver. And people just flooded these places. Some of these towns had thousands of people and today they have nobody. They were loaded. I've never, I've never met anyone. I, I, I've never met Garth Brooks. I do remember Garth Brooks one time saying, he's the only guy that I've ever heard say, I've got more money than I could ever spend in my life. He once said, he goes, I've got more money than my grandkids grandkids could spend, even if they were reckless. I wish I was his grandson. (laughs) I'd test it. But I really haven't. I've never met anyone who's like, you know, I've got enough. I'm just, I'm so satisfied. I'm good. Well, what, what Paul is, is asking them to understand is you got it all. God can't give any more. You, you have everything you need. Can, I don't know. Is, have you ever let that sink in? Therefore, you do not lack any spiritual gift. You have it all. Everything that you need as a church. Have you ever just sat back and said, well, we got it all. We don't need anything. I 
I'm so convinced that the enemy is always trying to tell us, you need more, you need more, you don't have this, you need more. We're always so focused on what we don't have. And the Lord is always trying to tell us, it's God's work in you, the hope of glory. You got it all, you, you have it all. Do you feel that contentment or are you always trying to be reminded by the enemy? Oh, you're, you're malnourished. Do you live with this scarcity feeling? Paul is trying to help them see you are poured into with the grace of God. You are lavished with grace, gifts galore. And by the way, you're confirmed to the end. Verse 8, he will keep you strong to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's really interesting. Why do you think he does that? Why do you think he tells them straight up at the end, you don't have anything to worry about. When Jesus comes back, you're going to be pure, spotless, blameless. You have nothing to worry about. Why would he tell them that? Because he never wants to use salvation as a leverage for behavior. He never wants to use salvation To threaten them. It's like if you don't behave, God won't save you. If you don't stop messing around, he doesn't want to use that. He doesn't want to cheapen God's grace. That's not going to be the basis of his call to holiness. In fact, he announces straight up. You have everything you need. You're safe in the end. I see God's grace in you. Now, let's talk about how you're living. He refuses to use any leverage other than love to talk about how you and I are obedient to Christ. A friend of mine had a really strange behavior. I gave him a book to read. He read the last chapter. Before he read the book. I said, what are you doing? He goes, I always read the last chapter first. I said, what do you do that for? He goes, because if I don't like the last chapter, I don't read the book. The dumbest thing in the world. He goes, well, if you don't like the last chapter, don't read the book. Here's your last chapter. You finish really well. You finish in glory. You finish spotless. You finish blameless. You finish pure. You finish in heaven. Now, on the way there, Jesus wants to clean you and me up. But he's never going to leverage heaven to do it. He's going to invite you through love and grace and kindness. Let's take your beautiful, messy life and let's clean it up for the glory of Christ.